The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. You know, every, every Wednesday I generate seven times more information than I can use, and it's been going on now for about 15 weeks, and it's just about killing me, and people are, you know, just coming up and they're frustrated and there's never enough time and all that, and I'm thinking, why are we doing this? I mean, it's killing me and frustrating you and all that, so I figure we'll take another week with Jonathan Edwards this week, and what I want to do is specifically zero in on treatise concerning religious affections. Um, you know, as we look at the heroes of the faith, there are just different kinds of people we could look at. But, you know, I've chosen people, at least this first go-round, who make contributions to us doctrinally. You know, it's, it's not just that their lives are an example, but their writing and their thinking continues to challenge us. As a matter of fact, Jonathan Edwards really doesn't have much for us, um, except in terms of his doctrine. Um, he does have an example, and we can follow his example, but frankly, his example is doctrinal, isn't it? I mean, we can trace out things from his life that we can connect to Scripture and say, you should live this way or shouldn't live that way based on what we're seeing. So basically, everything's doctrinal, isn't it? I mean, it's really all coming back to texts of Scripture and to a way of life. So I think that the heroes of the faith can exemplify or display uh, character traits that the Scripture tells us are worth worthwhile to us, but they're not going to advance our knowledge of that, are they? They're not, you're not going to see something in some hero of the faith that's not somewhere in Scripture. Isn't that true? I mean, it's all covered in Scripture. The question is, uh, is it motivating us? Is it challenging us? You read about the martyrs in the early Roman times of the Roman Empire. That challenges you, doesn't it? And, and you look at it and you say, wow, that's what it meant. They were willing to die for their faith, and that should affect you, and you should be willing to share the gospel with your boss. You know, I mean, if they died for their faith, you should be willing to open your mouth and share the gospel with your neighbor. And I think it does have that effect on us. But how much more if you have something they wrote based on Scripture that can still challenge us, right? And that's what we have tonight with Edwards and with Treatise on Religious Affections. Um, I've given you an outline. You have it. You have last week's as well. We spent some time on Edwards' life last week. We're really just going to zero in tonight on treatise concerning religious affections. Now, the context of the treatise, um, and, you know, it may be that some of you wonder, you think to yourself, I would never read anything that began with the word treatise. You know, I mean, that's just not me. I'm not a treatise kind of person, you know. But I think we should all be, to some greater or less degree, treatise kind of people. There's good solid meat in this treatise, um, and it's careful thinking. Uh, the issue, the context of the treatise, specifically, immediately, was a series of sermons that Edwards did on 1 Peter 1.8. Let me get the Bible. 1 Peter 1.8 talks about the spiritual experience. That Peter was writing to believers spread throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Christians spread out, spread, they're aliens and strangers in the world. And as he's writing, he's talking about the persecutions and trials they're going through. And he says, of those, uh, you know, grief, this trouble that you're going through, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Verse 7, it says, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Now, that should resonate with something that I just preached on on Sunday, right? 
the testing, the trials, the, the, the difficulties of the Christian life do what to your faith? Strengthen it, and in this case, prove it genuine. That's what proven character is in Romans chapter 5. That as you go through trials, your character, your faith is proven to be genuine. Now, how does that work? Well, and a fake faith, what will happen to a fake faith as a result of trials, persecutions, and difficulties? You'll weaken or fall away. That's the parable of the seed and the soils, isn't it? The rocky soil. What happened to the seed sown in rocky soil? It grew up quickly, remember? It did grow up. There was something there. You could observe it. It poked its little head up through the soil. And, and it started moving great guns, right? But then what happened? Well, the sun came out. And what happened when the sun came out? Well, the plant shriveled and it died. And why? Because there was no root. There was no root system. There was no moisture. And so when Jesus interprets this parable, who or what, who is the seed sown in rocky soil? Not a real Christian, okay? They immediately receive the word, Jesus says, with joy. But because they have no root, they quickly fall away. When troubles or persecutions come because of the word, they're gone. Have you ever seen anyone like that? Well, all you have to do is have a big revival, right? And things are going good, you know, going well for a while. And then if there starts to be some troubles, you'll see it. And that's about what happened. Was there a big revival in Edwards' day? Oh, yes, there was. And there were tons of people who were moved in some way. In what way? That's what he's sorting through now. And he's trying to explain the phenomenon of people falling away from their original purpose, their original excitement about Jesus. He's dealing with that now. All right, so he's going to First Peter, and he goes to a good place. He said, These trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, here's his text, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled, it says, with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Would you say that characterizes your walk with Jesus Christ? Joy unspeakable and full of glory. But he says that that's, that's what you're heading toward. That's your future in Jesus Christ. And he's preaching on that. Now, what is the treatise that we're looking at tonight? Treatise concerning what? Religious affections. Well, we're going to get into what affections are, but Edwards is saying inexpressible and glorious joy is an affection, isn't it? And that's what he's dealing with. So he chose his text well. So he preached a series of sermons in 1742, and he published them together in 1746. Now, by the time he published those uh, uh, lecture, uh, sermons in 1746, the revival was over. The reason you know that is that he talks about the late great moving of the Spirit of God in the treatise, or the late revival, the recent revival, that kind of thing. He speaks of it in past tense. That time of a genuine effusion and a pouring out, a general pouring out of the Spirit was over, and they were back to basically normal church life and dealing with the fallout of that revival. Now, as he was dealing with this, he was dealing with two equal and opposite errors concerning what had happened during the revival. Now, in a revival time, what kind of things go on? 
What does it look like if you come into a building and there's a revival going on? There's a lot of emotion, isn't there? What kind of emotions would you see, Charles? <laughs> there's a lot of stuff happening. And it's really kind of hard to make hide nor hair of it. I mean, what is it? What is this? Now, as you're looking at that, some people made one thing of it, right? And some people made the other thing of it. And he's trying to deal with it rationally and biblically. Now, what would the two opposite errors be? If they're both errors, what would one error be? Both extremes. What would one extreme be? That's right. If you see huge emotional outpourings and all that, that is a guaranteed mark that the Holy Spirit's been there. No question about it. If you see just people rolling on the floor and people just moved and excited and saying glory, hallelujah, and all kinds of stuff like that, there is no doubt that the Spirit's been there. That's one error. Okay, now what's the opposite error? Okay, well, or if you have that, if that's going on, it is definitely a mark of the devil. There is no question whatsoever that that is an evil thing every time. And there were people that were saying that. Charles Chauncey, for example, he's one of the so-called old lights. Um, these were old, uh, they're not necessarily chronologically older, but they were just holding to an old style of Puritan religion. And in effect, they were saying that religion is never in these displays. True religion is never in these affection, pouring out of affection or emotional displays, but it is only in reason and judgment and in dutiful behavior. So he's arguing against both sides with this treatise. He's trying to bring it to something more in the middle to look at each thing and try to assess what are genuine effects of the Spirit and what are not. And in so doing, he bequeaths to the church, to later generations, a beautiful assessment of what is true Christianity. And that's the real power here. It's not so much that we, if we ever have a revival here at First Baptist, we will be able to discern different types of emotional outbursts. It has a value for that. But that's not, in my opinion, its primary value. The primary value is so that we may know what one godly man says scripturally is genuine conversion, genuine Christianity, a genuine moving of the Spirit. Now, it's interesting how how Edwards analyzes Satan's scheme on this whole thing. He basically believes that, that Satan pushed unstable souls into extremes so that old lights like Chauncey would backlash against it and the church would end up more barren than it ever was before. And this is what Edwards says. Thus we easily run from one extreme to another. A little while ago, we were in the other extreme. There was a prevalent disposition. So you can find it in the... There was a prevalent disposition to look upon all high religious affections as eminent exercises of true grace without much inquiring into the nature and source of those affections and the manner in which they arose. Do you hear what he said? Without much inquiring as to where they came from, finding out about them. We, it was just, if they happened, they were of God and they didn't look, look into them, didn't inquire. Well, Edwards was a great and meticulous inquirer into things. He wants to find out, and he wants to test them against Scripture. Isn't this biblical? First John, dear brothers, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Isn't that what it says in First John? But yet it also says in First Thessalonians, do not quench the spirit, do not put out the spirit's fire, right? So you're kind of stuck, and therefore you need to do good inquiry. Because you might be quenching the spirit, or you might be running along the ways of a false spirit. So you actually have to do the work that Edwards does, namely to test every spirit to see whether it's genuinely the spirit of Christ or not. 
Does the Spirit do unpredictable things? I'm talking about the Holy Spirit of God. Does He do unpredictable things? Absolutely. Is it possible that He might do something unpredictable here at this church? I think we should pray toward that end. But we should also never forget the Scripture and realize that the Holy Spirit never does anything contrary to the written Word of God. Never. He will never, never do anything contrary to Scripture. For example, if somebody were to say, I think the Lord, I think the Holy Spirit told me to divorce my spouse and marry this other person. Well, you don't even need to wonder if that was the Spirit or not that told you that. I think it was the Spirit, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Yeah, different spirit, but it wasn't holy. Um, anyway, so a little while ago, he said, now it's 1746, a little while ago we were at one extreme. So anything that happened, it had to be God. If persons did but appear to be indeed very much moved and raised so as to be full of religious talk and express themselves with great warmth and earnestness and to be filled or to be very full, as the phrases were, it was too much the manner without further examination to conclude that such persons were full of the Spirit of God and had eminent experience of His gracious influences. A person like that could join any Baptist church. No questions asked. Talking much about religion, filled with some kind of energy and enthusiasm and excitement. But he's saying, is this necessarily a, a mark or a moving of the Spirit of God? What is really there? What is really going on? Okay? This was the extreme which was prevailing three or four years ago. But of late, instead of esteeming and admiring all religious affections without distinction, it is a thing much more prevalent to reject and discard all without distinction. Now, that's an opposite error, isn't it? We throw it out. No matter what, we just know it's wrong. No matter what, we throw it out. And herein appears the subtlety of Satan. This he knows is the way to bring all religion to a mere lifeless formality. Have you ever been to a church where religion was reduced to a mere lifeless formality? That's what you call a dead church, isn't it? And effectually shut out the power of godliness and everything which is spiritual and to have all true Christianity turned out of doors. Now, if you listen to Edward's analysis of what Satan had done, what do you think he thinks Satan's ultimate goal is? How had Satan maneuvered and where was Satan heading in terms of the church? What did he want to see happen in the church? Okay, cause discord, replacing the spiritual leadership, causing discord, and this great danger, according to Edwards, of mere lifeless formality. A dead church in which there is no religious affection. No religious affection. He's going to get to that. We're going to talk about that. But, I mean, you're exactly right. And that's, that's the direction he's heading. So, meanwhile, in the four years since the revival was at its peak, people started to fall away. What does it mean when people fall away? What does that mean? Yeah? No desire for what? Word of God. They were going for a while. Great guns. And then what? Stop coming. Stop showing interest. Back to their old ways. That's right. And so he's got to deal with that. And so he preaches the sermon series on 1 Peter 1.8. Now, what is Edward's thesis? Well, it's, it's really pretty simple. Edward's thesis statement is, true religion in great part consists in holy affections. Now, who is he basically refuting there? Charles Chauncey and the Old Lights, who says that religion is a matter of the reason and judgment and right behavior. No, wrong. It isn't. It consists primarily, chiefly, in holy affections. So I'm going to write that down. We've got holy Affections, And as we go on in our study tonight, you're going to see how important both words are, not just one. Holy affections. 
That's true religion. Consists in a great part. And it doesn't, it's not all holy affections, but it consists, it consists in a great part or a chief part in holy affections. Now, when you look at the phrase true religion, what does that mean? True religion as opposed to what? A counterfeit. False religion, right. But understand that Edwards used the word religion differently. To him, religion is Christianity. It's a relating with God. We have heard a lot of talks and sermons in which we said, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, that kind of thing. What they mean when they say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, they're talking about the same thing that Edwards is trying to avoid, a dry, lifeless formalism. If we understand religion as a dry, lifeless formalism, he'd jettison the term too. But he just didn't understand religion that way. It meant relating to God, obeying God, walking with God. It meant Christianity. Yeah, it's not what Edwards meant when he uses the religion. When he when he says true religion, well, he's talking about true Christianity. You can almost take the word religion out and put Christianity in there. That's what he meant by religion. We mean different things. And it doesn't have to mean that. I think they are preacher's tools to communicate. You're trying to get away from something and you say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. You're saying we don't want a dry, lifeless formalism. And so we kind of call religion a dry, lifeless formalism. Or we might say it's man reaching up to God, that kind of thing. But it doesn't have to be used that way. Realize that the book of James uses the word religion. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So there's nothing wrong with the word religion. Okay, now, true religion as opposed to false or counterfeit Christianity, what are affections? Well, this is very, very important. Affections are, quote, the more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and will of the soul. Wow. I mean, what in the world does that mean? Well, what it means is it's the moving of the, of the soul kind of in an obvious way. What we call emotions, but it's more than that, and he's going to go deeper. The recurring theme, we'll get to that, but the recurring theme is this. You want to boil it all down, you're going to get this. The love and pursuit of holiness is the enduring mark of the true Christian. You want to boil it all down, what he's saying in this treatise. The love and pursuit of true holiness is the mark of Christianity, the mark of a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Holy affections. Look at that again. The love of holiness. You love holiness. It's not a burden to you. It's not, if, if you could have anything for yourself right now, it would be holiness. It would be a, a purity and a holiness and a rightness in your walk with God, right? A love for it and also a willingness to pursue it. A sacrificial pursuit of that holiness. That is true Christianity. That's what the Holy Spirit does in you. All right. Look at Hebrews 12:14. It's printed there on the page. Make every effort. Make every effort, or the Greek says pursue, zealously run after, pursue. Make every effort to live at peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Wow. That is very, very serious, isn't it? And the thing that makes it serious is the human effort involved here. In other words, I do not believe we are justified by works. You've heard I'll say it 5,000 times. But the thing is, what happens is when you're justified, guess what happens to your efforts? They start going in a new direction. You start pursuing something new, don't you? And if you're not pursuing that new thing, guess what? You haven't been justified. There's a new life principle in you. You're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And you're going to have holy breathings, yearnings after new things. 
you're going to be seeing changes inside you. And they are changes in the affections. You're going to be loving new things and hating other things that you didn't used to. There's a new change and you're going to start pursuing holiness. Now, you're never going to attain it in this world. can't. All right? But you're going to pursue it. And the mark of true Christianity is that holy pursuit, that yearning, that love for holiness. Well, there, you've got it. That's the, that's the boiled-down essence of Treatise on Religious Affections. But he does an awful lot more than that. First thing he does is he delves into human personality. Now, in this, he's very, very interesting. He identifies two great faculties of the human soul. One is what we could call the understanding. Okay, the understanding. Now, what does the understanding do? Well, it perceives. Read me the other words I wrote down there. Perceives. What else does it do? Views. So it, it takes in information. It views. What else? Speculates. So it goes beyond to imagine things. Discerns and judges. Okay. So you understand the faculty of the brain that does these kinds of things. It's an analytical, thinking, understanding part. Right? Okay, what's the other part? Heart. We, what we could call heart. Now, you've heard of that distinction between head knowledge and heart knowledge. Okay. Frankly, I, I think that the distinction can be harmful because everything starts as head knowledge. And head knowledge is a good thing, isn't it? I mean, you really don't have any heart knowledge without head knowledge. Okay? The thing is, what Edwards is saying, it can't stop here. It's got to move on in here. That's what he's saying. Yeah, not at all. A good example of that, for example, you know, would be um, what uh, Abraham did in sacrificing Isaac. Remember in, in Hebrews 11? It says in Hebrews 11, Abraham reasoned that God could raise him from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. And that's in the faith chapter. What faith does is gives you spiritual facts that you can't get through your five senses. Right? It gives you information you would have no other way. Like there's an invisible God, a trinity, all this stuff you accept by faith in the Word of God. What reason does, or should do, is take the facts taken in by that and extends and works out with it. That's what I preached on Sunday. There's an assurance that's reasoned out based on starting points taken by faith. So you reason things out. That's what Paul does with us in Romans 5, doesn't he? If a dead Savior on the cross does X, Y, and Z, how much more does a living Savior in your life do A, B, and C? There's a reasoning out there, isn't there? Well, you've got this whole reasoning capability, but it's not plugged into this whole source of spiritual information called faith. So faith hands you spiritual facts, basically. Would you say that Jesus Christ as the Son of God is a spiritual fact to you? Is it as certain as the chair you're sitting on? It is to me, too. Well, how is it? Well, you're believers. I mean, I could easily go down the road to some universities, which shall not be named, and collect some group of very intelligent people, and they don't see it. Okay? They don't get it. And so they're not going to be able to reason out from that. But we're taking some facts... By faith, aren't we? They're not contra-rational. They're just supra-rational. They go beyond the mind. But we accept them. And then our minds start to reason things out based on it, don't you? know, I said, well, if God cares for the sparrows, won't he care for me? Isn't that reasoning out? Doesn't Jesus do that in the Sermon on the Mount? If your heavenly Father clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow sown in the fire, isn't he going to much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Right? If you know, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father... He's reasoning with us, isn't He? Yeah.
No, but God created it. And what happens is he takes the brain and now it's plugged into a whole bunch of new spiritual realities that you never knew before. But now you accept them, you trust them, but you've got a thinking process that goes along with it. And God blesses that. He created it. And that's where you, whenever you get this how much more type of language, that is reasoning, is it not? So we're taking some facts. There is a God who behaves a certain way. Why be anxious? Isn't that what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount? He's reasoning against anxiety. Anxiety makes no sense. But reason alone is not enough. And that's what Edwards is saying. We've got to go on into the affections, into the emotions, into the other things. So what is the heart? Well, it breaks into basically two sections, affection and will. Now, you remember last time, okay, affection and will. I believe the will is the servant of the heart. Will is a servant. It's not going to go anywhere the heart doesn't want it to go. You will never suddenly up and decide something contrary to your nature. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. And if you don't think I say, so I have free will to throw myself off the building. Oh, yeah? Do it then. <laughs> well, you won't because you're not suicidal. It's not. It's, it's what I'm saying. The will serves the inclinations of the heart is what it is. But we're not going to get there tonight. We're not talking about will. I want to zero in on affection. Other than that, it's just talk, isn't it? Just theory. Yeah, well. Okay. Remember what we talked about last week. Remember this scale? And we had the zero, and this was the plus side, and this was the minus side. The heart has the capability not only to understand, but to like or dislike, right? To approve or disapprove. That's affection. You're either drawn to something or repelled from it. You like something or you don't. You love something or you hate it. You see what I'm talking about? Your heart does this all the time. You don't even know it's doing it. Can you give me an example? Your mind takes in some information and then your heart starts to approve or disapprove. What am I talking about? Asparagus. Do you like it? Okay. It's on, it's on the negative side here. That's the whole point. But on this side, Romans chapter 3, if you look at Romans 3, okay, there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. What does it mean to seek God? It means to want him, to yearn for him. He becomes your affection. It's what you're yearning for. And, and Paul's already told us how many people there are in the category of those that naturally seek God. Zippo. Nobody naturally seeks God. Nobody. Isn't that what he's saying there in Romans 3? And he says it in as profuse language as you can get. You know, there is no one who does good. No, not one. Jesus said it too. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good, God. No one is good but God alone. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Jesus made the same testimony. We're like this, okay? Naturally this way. All of a sudden, what happens? We start to love God. We're on this side. God becomes our affection. And as a matter of fact, he's our positive infinity. He is, there is nothing higher than God. He's our, our top affection, right? Should be. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's your first and greatest commandment. Nothing else like it. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus? He said, he said uh, I'll give you all this if you'll what? Bow down and worship me. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What does that mean? Or what does Jesus mean when he says, I tell you the truth, unless you hate your father and mother and even your own life, you're not worthy of me. Well, he means by comparison to God. He's not commanding you to hate your parents. You have to understand Jesus' statement in context. He said, compared to any other affection you have in this world, loyalty to God is number one. Nothing else greater. Nothing else greater. Were you going to say something? Somebody, I thought I saw a hand. All right. 
So anyway, what he's saying is that religion consists in the affections. It consists in the part of you that approves and likes and is drawn to and seeks, right? And that God transforms the heart so that he, that he becomes your great affection. Now, how does he back this up? You know, you could say up to now it's just human philosophy. Well, no, the scripture supports this. And he does, he basically does three things. He looks at scriptural statements, he looks at scriptural examples, and then highest proof, heaven itself. And this is what he writes in terms of scriptural statements. He that hath doctrinal knowledge and speculation only without affection. I've met theologians like that. <laughs> Do you know what we're talking about? All that head knowledge, all that dry reasoning. It's like, don't you have any, I mean, where's the fire here? Where's the passion? I mean, don't you love God? But he's saying, he that hath doctrinal knowledge and speculation only without affection never is engaged in the business of religion. The holy scriptures do everywhere place religion very much in the affections, such as fear, hope, love, hatred, desire, joy, gratitude, compassion, and zeal. He actually goes through each of these words and brings out scriptural evidence. All right, take the first one, fear. Is there anything in, in scripture about fear concerning God? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Is fear of the Lord a good thing in the Bible or not? Yeah, in every other way except for that one verse in Romans 8 where it says that we're not a slave again to fear. So we have to understand it properly, but there's a certain kind of fear that is very good and healthy and right. Okay, that's an affection. All right, what about hope? All you who hope in the Lord. That's a, it's just another way of speaking of believers, people who hope in the Lord or hope in God. Love, we've talked about. You look at 1 Corinthians 13, you see the validity to this to this, um, to this uh, teaching. If I have, you know, a faith that can move mountains, and if I have wisdom and insight and can know all mysteries and have not love, I'm what? Nothing. Wouldn't you say 1 Corinthians 13 would be a major support to this treatise? Absolutely. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, Paul says. Or we've got hatred. Somebody, does somebody have a Bible? Look at Psalm 97.10. Psalm 97.10. Somebody read that for me. You're supposed to hate things? Oh, yeah. Lots of things. You, you're supposed to hate what God hates. You're supposed to have a strong repulsion from the things that God strongly repelled from. I was reading today about a word in uh, Luke 11. I'm uh, sorry, John, sorry, John 11, the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. And in verse 33 and 38, he uses this strong Greek word. This is powerful. It says in the NIV, it says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and those around her weeping, he was, the NIV says, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Well, that's a weak translation. It actually means he was close to overcome with rage. And it says deeply moved in spirit. So he internalized it. He poured it in because he wasn't angry at anyone around him. What was he enraged at? Death. He hates death because he's life. It's like a matter-antimatter kind of thing. And so what is he about to do to death? He's about to shred it like a warrior. He's going to say, move that stone. I'm going, to, I'm going to destroy death. I think of that personally. He's going to do that to my death. He's going to raise me from the dead. And he's going to do it with passion too. Because he hates my death. You understand? that There's a, there's a passion there. We should feel the same thing. There, Jesus is a passionate being, isn't he? And so the religion consists in the affections. We're supposed to love what he loves. What did Jesus love? What did he really love? Above all things, what did he love? The Father. Above all things, he loved the Father. What else did he love? 
Well, his neighbor, didn't he? <laughs> Did anyone ever love his neighbor the way Jesus loved his neighbor? No. He loved the Father above all things. Jeff, would you like to share something with us? Perfect love does cast out fear in the same way that Romans 8 talks about that as well. But perfect love does not cast out uh, uh, Proverbs 1.8. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We've got to find a way to put those together. There is something that John meant and then something that Solomon meant, and they're not mutually exclusive. So there is a kind of fear that perfect love casts out. But then there is a fear of the Lord that is never cast out. I don't think it's absolutely that. That is right. We do not need to fear condemnation or wrath. Not at all. Okay, so he's making his point here. Fear the Lord, broken, broken and contrite heart. All of these things are part of the affection. He goes through spiritual, uh, scriptural examples. Eminent biblical saints, David, Paul, and John. Would you say David was an affectionate man in his relationship with God? Yeah, you have evidence all over the place in the book of Psalms. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. He is yearning for God. Would you say that David's relationship with God could be characterized by head knowledge or understanding? Not at all. It started there, but it went beyond there. I mean, there was a strong affection for God, a yearning even. <laughs> David was a bad kid. All right, and Paul, John, all of these things. But the highest proof Edwards reserves is heaven itself. The religion of heaven consists very much in affection. There is doubtless true religion in heaven, and true religion in its utmost purity and perfection. What Edward says is, if you want to look at what gold is, don't look at the ore, look at the refined gold, right? So you want to look at true religion, look in heaven. What are they doing in heaven? What's going on there? They're praising God all the time. Oh, we praise you, Lord, or, you know. Pray. No, there is, there is a fire and a passion to the praising that goes on in heaven. Is there not? My goodness, there is. And this is what he says. He says, but according to the scripture representation of the heavenly state, the religion of heaven consists chiefly in holy and mighty love and joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's what we're heading toward. Now, he gets into this issue of why people fall away. And in this, he distinguishes between saving and, and common works of the spirit. All right. First of all, there's a testimony of the fact. It is with professors of religion. Do you know what a professor of religion is? It doesn't mean a seminary professor. What does it mean? Somebody who claims to be a Christian, a professor. They make a profession of faith. It is with professors of religion, especially such as become so in a time of outpouring of the Spirit of God, as it is with blossoms in the spring. There are vast numbers of them upon the trees, which all look fair and promising, but yet many of them never come to anything. It is the mature fruit which comes afterwards, and not the beautiful colors and smell of the blossoms that we must judge by. Okay? What is he talking about? Well, in a time of revival, do you think it's at all possible that someone might get swept along? That someone might get excited by what's going on? That someone might imitate behaviors that they see around them? And might not even know that they're imitating, but might actually feel that they're going along, and yet they have not received any regeneration of the Holy Spirit? Is that not possible? I think it is. And so we have to have the issue of distinguishing marks, vital for external observers. If you want to know from the outside looking in, Edwards distinguished between saving operations of the Holy Spirit and common operations. By common, he meant such influences of God's power as may sober, arrest, and convict men, and which may even bring them to what at first appears to be repentance and faith, yet these influences fall short of inward saving renewal. They make a profession, you know? And nothing comes of it. 
Now, we have examples of this. Herod Antipas, for example, did many things, act, active type things in Mark 6.20. We've already talked about the stony ground hearers of the word. The very interesting thing about the stony ground hearers is that they receive with joy. You look it up, with joy. Metacara, they receive it with joy. And they're not Christians. How can you receive the word with joy and yet not be a Christian? Well, you ask Jesus. He's the one that told the parable. But they receive the word with joy and yet there's nothing there. There's no root. There's no life. There's no harvest, no fruit. And so he's dealing with this. In the middle of this, as he's looking for distinguishing marks, he's going to go through and he's going to start saying what are and what are not true saving motions or movements of the Holy Spirit of God. Is this important? Is it important to know what a true saving motion of the Holy Spirit is and what isn't? Oh, absolutely. It's eternally important. Now, in the middle of all this, four years later into the revival, Satan had created or concocted a revival time counterfeit. Now, what was this? Well, he says no one would counterfeit rocks. What are you going to counterfeit? You're going to counterfeit rubies and emeralds and diamonds, right? So, also, Satan's not going to counterfeit things that are obviously not believers. There's going to be a counterfeit that looks very much similar to externally a believer, but isn't one. Now, these people did not quickly relapse into the world, but sought actually to prolong the revival. Tended towards censoriousness, sudden impulses of the spirit, needless divisions, arrogance, and an unseemly boldness toward God. And he talks about here the seven demons story. You remember Jesus said, he says, um, suppose a demon leaves a man, goes to arid, arid places seeking rest, right? And doesn't find it. And so what does he do? What does the demon do? I'll go back to the place I left. And what does he find when he gets there? He finds a house unoccupied, key word, swept clean and put in order. What does swept clean and put in order mean? It's empty. Unoccupied means it's empty. But what, what happens to a life when it's swept clean and put in order? There's been a change. Okay? There's a moral transformation. The person's not doing some of the bad things they used to do. But they're unoccupied. What does unoccupied mean? There's no Holy Spirit. And what's the final condition of that man? Well, seven other demons go and live there, and it's worse. The last is worse than the first. And Jesus said that's what's going to happen in this generation. He's talking about Israelites, all right? There's a moral transformation. What Edwards does is takes that story and applies it to people who are morally transformed, but then there's been no, no breaking, no repentance, no work of the Spirit inwardly. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. As we go into this, um, Wesley, for example, said, and he had no problem saying it all, these people were all Christians and now they're not. That's, what, that's Wesley. It's easy for him. He, he thinks Edwards makes it all too difficult. Christianity is basically simple. Repent and believe, walk with Jesus. And keep doing it, right? And if you stop repenting and believing, guess what? You're not a Christian anymore. The problem is that that flies in the face of all the assurance verses, right? It flies in the face of eternal life verses and other things. But Wesley had no problem flying in the face of those verses. You're justified, you're declared not guilty, and then God changes his mind and declares you guilty again. And then you're not guilty again, and then you're guilty, you know, back and forth. That's not the Christianity I know. I think when you're justified, you're justified. You're declared not guilty forever. And so, Edwards is right to try to discern a true, genuine working of the Spirit of God from that which is false. But Wesley said, you know, said, very interesting the way that, that Wesley writes about it. Let's see if I can find it. 
He said, the design of Mr. Edwards in the treatise from which the following extract is made seems to have been chiefly, if not altogether, to serve his hypothesis. In the three preceding tracts, he had given an account of the glorious work in New England. But in a few years, a considerable part of these turned back as a dog to the vomit. That's a quote from 2 Peter 2.20. Uh, what was the plain inference to be drawn from this? Why? That a true believer may make a shipwreck of his faith. You can lose your salvation. How then could he evade the force of this? Truly by eating his own words and proving as well as the nature of the thing would bear that they were no believers at all. In order to do this, he heaps together so many curious, subtle, metaphysical distinctions like these, right, as are sufficient to puzzle the brains and confound the intellects of all the plain men and women in the universe and to make them doubt, if not wholly deny, all the work which God had wrought in their souls. That's what Wesley says. Now, the interesting thing is, the essence of it is what happens when you're born again. What happens in regeneration, right? Isn't that kind of the essence of it? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 The old is gone, behold, everything has become new. What happened to that, Mr. Wesley? Now I'm back to an old creation again? Do you realize that everything you see, everything you take in with the five senses, all of it is temporary? Anything you can see with your eyes is temporary. Do you know that? What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is what? Eternal. Right? Isn't that what God says? Okay. There will someday be a new heaven and a new earth. Isn't that wonderful? I look forward to that. Isn't that great? New heavens and a new earth. It's what we call the new creation. According to 2 Corinthians 5.17, your soul, if you're a Christian, is already a new creation thing. You see what I'm talking about? It's already new creation stuff. There's something physically new creation, only one physical new creation thing in the universe. You know what it is? What's the first fruits of resurrection? First fruits. Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. Does Jesus have a resurrection body? You bet he does. Has his body decayed or degenerated at all in the last 2,000 years? Not one bit. Is it a physical body? Yes. You can see that a spirit hath not flesh and bones as I have. Right? He's got it already. He's got the resurrection body. Huh? That's uh, a different issue. All right? It's a different issue. All right? So I, I heard that whole thing. I don't even go there yet. All I know is he's doing everything he can to persuade that it's a physical resurrection. Okay? All right? I don't know what a spiritual body is. You know? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about it is sown a physical body. It is raised what? A spiritual body. That's like a kind of mutually exclusive. No, it isn't. Jesus has one. So there is, in all the universe, there are kind of two new creation things, aren't there? Your spirits, having been born again, right? And Jesus' resurrection body. Isn't that wonderful? Now, my question to Mr. Wesley is, how do you go over into new creation and then come back because you sin. That doesn't make any sense. What does God do to a Christian when they sin? He convicts them. He works with them. He ch ch chastens them, right? Hebrews, you know, He works with them. Does He throw them out of the family? Does He take back the new creation? Does He unjustify you? This doesn't make any sense. What happens? Huh? It's a new birth. And it's permanent, is it not, brother? It is permanent. And it comes. So then, what happens with the new birth? He puts in you a yearning for something, doesn't he? It's created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You start yearning after holiness. And this is what Edward says, and it's so beautiful. The, you know, the bottom line comes down to what happens when somebody is born again. 
The quote I put on your page, it says, Grace planted in the heart at the new birth is a principle of holy action or practice, and it always produces an abiding change of nature in a true convert. Now, what he says is that, that yearning after holiness is in every born-again Christian, guaranteed. But with the counterfeit, there's going to be things missing. That's what Edward says in Treatise on Religious Affection. Now, what's missing from a counterfeit? That's very important to figure out. What's missing? Well, he lists some. For example, humility is, list, is missing. When the Lord saves you, he breaks your pride, doesn't he? <laughs> How does he do it? Does Romans break your pride? Is there anything in there that will break your pride in Romans? Yeah. Romans 3 is pretty tough. There's no one righteous, no, not one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. Ooh, that's a painful word. Ungodly. It says, this is what we are apart from Christ. Does that humble you? Yeah, it does. Is it good to be so humbled? Absolutely. It is very necessary. It is very necessary. We must be broken before the cross. We must be humbled. And so these things are missing. True humility. An abiding sense of sin. This is what Edward says, and it's so beautiful. All gracious affections, that is affections coming to you from grace, are broken-hearted affections. Broken-hearted affections. Now, what is he talking about broken-hearted? What does broken-hearted mean? Convicted? Remember Psalm 51? What are the sacrifices of God? What does he want from us? What is this? A broken and contrite spirit, O oh God, you will not despise. Is that just temporary or is that like kind of for all time? For all time, he wants broken and contrite spirit, which he does not despise. Is there ever time we can say, there, I'm done with that broken and contrite spirit thing? Okay, glad to be done with that. That was an early phase of my Christian life. Now I kind of moved on. What is he saying? He's saying repentance is lifelong, isn't it? Are you kind of repenting now? Have, you, have any of you repented from anything today? <laughs> you are ongoingly repenting all the time. And so all the affections that he works in you are broken-hearted, humble, submissive, quiet affections. You see, not quiet. I'm not saying that we don't get excited and praise God. That's not what I'm saying. But there's a sense that all of it has come from God by grace and that we don't deserve any of it. So humility, abiding sense of sin, a reverential fear before God as we dealt with uh, earlier, and a proper balance, a profound sense of salvation with a deep abiding sense of personal sinfulness, an unshakable assurance with a deep humility. Are those things, can they go together? Can you have an unshakable assurance and along with an unbelievably deep humility? Yeah, if you don't think your salvation came from you, finish this sentence. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Are you going to be doing that in heaven? Oh, yeah, and nothing else. Are you going to have at least a section of the heavenly week to boast about yourself? One day a week, maybe, given to self-boasting. <laughs> Zippo! It's, it's gone forever. We never will boast in ourselves again. We're through with that topic. Through with it. All right. Firm comfort along with a soft heart. Richer than others, yet the poorest in spirit. Tallest and strongest saint, yet the least and tenderest of all. These things go together in a truly born-again person. The lasting pursuit, bottom line, personal holiness. And Edward says this, early Christian experiences are strange and scattered and confused. But what ends up stabilizing and moving in the end, when the ground gets under your feet and you start moving, is a quest for holiness, if you're a Christian. That's what starts moving and happening. To finish with this, to show it scripturally, I know we've been in Edwards, but I want to finish in Romans 8. Take a minute, and if you don't have it, I'll read it, but 
Look in Romans 8, and we'll finish with this tonight. All right, Romans chapter 8. We could start anywhere. It's just so beautiful. But um, let's talk. start at verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, or we're debtors, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. What does die mean there? Hell. All right. If you live according to the sinful nature, you will go to hell. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. What does live mean there? Go to heaven. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Children of God. He just gave you a definition of what a child of God is. Somebody who's led by the Spirit. Well, before that, he gave you a definition of what it meant to be led by the Spirit. What does the Spirit lead you to do? Put to death the misdeeds of the body. You see what I'm saying? Therefore, just by a chain of logic, and Paul's very logical, those who put to death the misdeeds of the body by the Spirit, those and those only are children of God. You see what I'm talking about? So Edwards is very right to end up on holiness as the ultimate and final test of true, genuine salvation. Because when the Holy Spirit comes in you, he does this in you. He leads you to say no to sin. He leads you to put sin to death. Does that mean you're going to be perfect? Absolutely not. First John covers that. If anyone says, I have no sin, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. But we have an atoning sacrifice. We have somebody at the right hand of God praying for us. But you want to know what the Spirit does in you? He leads you to put to death the misdeeds of the body. And that is a true and genuine affection. Now, in the end, the Spirit also makes Christ look beautiful to you. And you are yearning and drawn to Christ. The Spirit is constantly pointed to Christ, isn't he? Constantly pointed to the cross and to Christ. That's why all truly gracious affections are broken-hearted affections. Because he's constantly bringing you to the cross and to Jesus. And Jesus becomes incredibly beautiful to you and attractive. And you love him. And so we get back to 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, Christ, you love him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and you are filled with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's affection. It's a love for an unseen being and we love Him only by faith. Isn't that right? But He's real, isn't He? Someday He's coming for you. Any questions? We've talked tonight about treatise on religious affections. We've only begun to scratch the surface. If you want to read it, take seven or eight months of your life and work, work your way through it. Do it. It's well worth it. Any questions? All right, let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.